I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is the Southern Baptist Convention. This is part one of two episodes, so make sure that when you are finished with this one, you listen to the second part. In this episode, we walk through early American church history some of the founders of evangelicalism, some church actions, and the beginnings of the actual convention. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, Garen, before we talk about the actual Southern Baptist Convention, tell us about the history leading up to all of these events. Paint the picture for us. The Southern Baptist Convention broke off of the existing Baptist church in 1845, but they didn't just cease to be Baptist. So really to talk about their story, you have to go back further than just when they broke away. And so we're going to really start by just talking about the complicity of the church in racism going back to the beginning of America. And then we're going to kind of trace those threads through to the Southern Baptist Convention and its formation and go all the way to the present. So that's the goal of this episode. Cool. So at the very beginning of the founding of America, slaves were not even seen to have souls. It was the common view that slaves couldn't even or shouldn't even be evangelized because they were not seen as possessing souls that were capable of learning. So just complete racist view. Then outside of some Quakers and a few scattered others, almost no Anglos before the start of the 18th century, slave owner or not, Christian or non-Christian, questioned the validity of slavery as an institution. The historian Lester Shearer says, quote, in Christian life and thought, the accommodation with slavery was almost complete. There was not even until the anti-slavery societies and manumission societies started really pushing back on slavery. There was for a long time, it was just an accepted part of life that was completely assumed by everyone. Not by everyone, because there were some people who did push back on it, but it was just a, a wide, complicit acceptance of it, including in Christianity. According to the Reverend Peter Fontaine, he said, to live in Virginia without slaves is morally impossible. He like, couldn't even conceive of a way of doing it. And he, as a reverend, is advocating for it. So one of the dynamics that then came to exist is that after a time, Christians started to realize we should evangelize all these slaves. There's all these slaves that we've brought to America. And the, the, it came to be the prevailing view that they did have souls, but there was fear on the part of white masters that if we evangelize them and they become Christians, that's going to kind of chip away at slavery. Because once they start to, we have to consider them brothers then, and then like, how can we enslave them? And so then most white masters did not evangelize their slaves. And it became such a problem or such a prevailing view that Christian ministers then actually went and petitioned to state legislatures asking them to clarify in the law that slaves who became Christians remained slaves. 
so that I mean, the, like the the reason given was so that white masters wouldn't have an incentive not to evangelize them. But you can see it's like their priority was enslavement, not evangelism. So even when they came to see them as having eternal souls, they would then, from from their own views, they would leave them eternally condemned in order to keep them as slaves and property, if that's what the dilemma was, which is horrific. Even if you read the baptismal vows of the slaves who received baptism, there, here's an example from a missionary, Francis Lejeau, who said in his baptismal vow that he gave to slaves, quote, you declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe to your master while you live, but merely for the good of your soul and to partake in the graces and blessings promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. And then there's other ministers, Presbyterian minister Samuel Davies advocated and advertised that he said, there never was a good Christian yet who was a bad servant, trying to advertise to white slave owners to like, hey, you should evangelize your slaves and they'll be even better servants. And so you can see the, the context, the culture of Christians. It was so compromised in, in enslavement and property and wealth, money, power, all those things came first. And then to the degree that they could you know, have their cake and eat it too, then they started to want to evangelize their slaves, but only to the degree that, that they could facilitate within that system of slavery. And even, continue, maybe you want to talk more about this, they, they cut down, trimmed down, and edited the Bible in order to give slaves Bibles that were didn't include passages that make slavery look bad. Right, that's basically it. They um, took out... Anything that referenced slavery not being a, a good thing, they took out, you know, stories of Exodus, anything that would inspire enslaved people to want to fight for freedom. They would basically recruit black pastors or make black pastors from enslaved people and freed people and have them preach the message of condoning slavery and that, so yeah, that they would receive wealth and prosperity in heaven and not on earth if they did well as enslaved people mm-hmm. by obeying their masters and, you know. Yeah, they use the Bible to manipulate them. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting about the Southern Baptist Convention is that they oftentimes would accept black converts. So they believed in black people being Christians, but they would have white overseeing of their churches, especially after the um, the Nat Turner revolt, which that was a situation where Nat Turner, he was one of the black pastors that they used to go and speak at different plantations to condone slavery and encourage enslaved people to submit to their to their masters and just endure slavery until they died. And then in heaven, they would be great. And so when Nat Turner, the Nat Turner revolt, it just, <laughs> it scared the crap out of everybody because mm-hmm. that, and that's the thing that they always feared anyway, mm-hmm. um, which is why the oppression with slavery was so 
heinous and so intense was yeah. to dissuade people from revolting and dissuade people from plotting to revolt and plotting to escape. Mm-hmm. When the Nat Turner Rebellion happened, there was just this increase of white overseeing of the church, of black churches, because some black churches were bigger or larger in number mm-hmm. than the white churches in their area. Mm-hmm. Some of the black Baptist churches were bigger than, you know, so they were some of the biggest churches in, in the South. And so they required that they would have white pastors oversee leadership and or white pastors be the actual pastors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they would segregate black people, make them sit in certain areas. It was crazy yeah. that they could believe that black people were worthy of being Christians, but not be worthy of human dignity and decency mm-hmm. and then condone enslavement and oppression and rape and breeding women like animals. Like it's there like there is no both and, but some kind of way, white privilege and white solidarity made a way for all those things to exist equally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they I think pretty much universally did not allow black churches after the Nat Turner Rebellion to have black people in leadership. And they even limited, like, in a lot of places, the size of churches and how many people could gather. And, yeah, installed white pastors in charge of everything because they were afraid of a slave revolt. Mm-hmm. And there were slave Bibles. They called them slave Bibles. And the slave Bible was called Select Parts of the Holy Bible for the Use of Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands. So that was one slave Bible. Mm-hmm. Like that was the name, the full title. Select Parts of the Holy Bible for the Use of the Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands. And it was produced in England. It, 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 crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extra crazy because in the Bible itself, there are multiple times warnings of curses for those who would edit down the Bible. And so just the Bible itself warns like, don't dare trim down or trim out parts of the Bible. And yet they were doing exactly that right. to manipulate and spiritually abuse. They took out Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, because they were afraid of uh, rebellion. Mm-hmm. So the some of the early influencers of all of Christianity in America were the leaders of the First and Second Great Awakenings. And so George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were two of the three most key figures in the First Great Awakening. Um, George, what's, the, what's the time period we're in? Uh, 1741 is kind of the center of this next part. So George Whitfield testified before Parliament, because this is pre-Revolutionary War, so it's the British Parliament, and he testified in support of slavery in Georgia. He actually was part of advocating for Georgia to become a slave state. He's a pastor? He's a pastor. He's like a leader of the First Great Awakening. He was a Methodist at first. or Yep. And he asked for slaves to support his orphanage that he had started. And he basically said, like, without slavery, I'm not going to be able to maintain this orphanage. 
So then he wrote that the trustees, quote, should see good hereafter to grant a limited use of Negroes. It must certainly in all outward appearances be as flourishing a colony as South Carolina. So just writing, advocating for Georgia to be made prosperous slave colony like South Carolina is. And he argued that God had specifically created the Georgian climate for blacks. He said that also that the colony would lose its large investment without increased productivity that would come from slavery. So George Whitfield, leader of Christianity in America at that time, advocated for Georgia to become a slave state, which we know from later on history that is such a difference in like the just the electoral math of how the rest of history unfolded. Jonathan Edwards was another leader of the First Great Awakening, and he in 1731 purchased his first slave, his first enslaved African named Venus at an auction in Rhode Island. And throughout his lifetime, he owned several other people, including Joseph Lee and a young boy named Titus. And then in the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney, key figure in the Second Great Awakening, said overtly that he thought that slavery was, though slavery was sinful, he thought that racial prejudice was not. He said, you err in supposing that the principle of abolition and amalgamation are identical. Abolition is a question of flagrant and unblushing wrong, a direct and outrageous violation of fundamental right. The other is a question of prejudice that does not necessarily deprive any man of any positive right. Yeah, so he was an advocate for white supremacy at the same time that he did oppose slavery. So let's look at some other kind of early church actions on the part of a couple different denominations and how they dealt with the issue of, of racism and slavery. For the Presbyterians at the 1818 Presbyterian General Assembly, they said that slavery was, quote, utterly inconsistent with the law of God, which seems good. But then at the same time, they were sympathetic to slaveholders whom they perceived to be trapped in a moral dilemma. Thus they recommended, here, check what their recommendation is in light of the fact that slavery is utterly inconsistent with the law of God. They recommended that slave owners support the colonization society, give religious instruction to the slaves, and to the degree possible, avoid cruel treatment of their slaves. At the same exact assembly, they excommunicated a minister because he was seen as too radical of an abolitionist. <laughs> the Methodists, in the year before the Methodist church split, uh, 25,000 members owned 208,000 slaves, and 1,200 Methodist clergy were slave owners. From 1846 until the Civil War, every man who achieved the, bishop, uh, the rank of bishop in the Methodist Church was a slaveholder. And then we come to the Southern Baptists. Again, the, the Baptist Church existed before the Southern Baptist Convention broke off of it. So prior to the American Revolution, the Baptist Church was a pretty small minority because the church under British rule was pretty much all the Anglican Church. And the Anglican Church did support slavery. And so in order to draw a contrast, the Baptist Church opposed slavery. And basically they criticized the Anglican Church for their support of slavery. But then once the Anglican Church was basically getting kicked out of town after the American Revolution, everyone was looking for a new denomination. And so the Baptists wanted to be that denomination. And so they changed their view on slavery in order to accommodate everyone coming in and becoming Baptists. So they became pro-slavery throughout the South at that point. So while the Baptists welcomed slaves and free black people as members into their church, like you were saying earlier, Katina, they pretty much universally 
black people were not allowed into any kind of leadership roles, and they also generally had segregated seating. So then in 1845 is when the Southern Baptist Convention started, and the Southern Baptist denomination as we know it now started in 1845. And there was a larger Baptist church at that time, and then they split. And the Southern Baptist church in the southern states broke off with about 400,000 churchgoers, about 300 Baptist leaders representing 400,000 churchgoers broke off. And the dispute was over slavery, over whether slavery was sinful. And also the other issue was whether Northern donations could go to Southern missionaries who owned slaves. The North didn't want their missions money going to slave owners, to slaveholders. So that was the reason for the, the split. And William Johnson, the first president of the SBC, said in a quote, These northern brethren thus acted upon a sentiment that they failed to prove that slavery is, in all circumstances, sinful. So then we want to move in the discussion to the seminaries that were training pastors of the Southern Baptist Convention. Like this is where the denomination was getting all of its, uh, all of the ministers were being trained in first one seminary, and then now the, currently there's up to six uh, Southern Baptist seminaries. But Southern Seminary was the first seminary that was like the central place where the convention was training all of its ministers. And all four of the founders of Southern Seminary were slaveholders. William Williams was, he enslaved five people. And he testified in support of slavery in New York in a newspaper even after the Civil War. He defended it. He said that before the war, white Southerners were nearly unanimous in their belief that slavery was just. And now that slavery was abolished, quote, we still maintain that slaveholding is morally right. Which is not even just, the, the, his view wasn't even just, well, it's bad, but I mean, we, we kind of are in this bind. He was like actually right. advocating it's good. Hmm. Basil Manley enslaved seven people. He was one of the other founders of Southern. Despite his early opposition to slavery as a young man, Basil Manley eventually became one of its most ardent apologists. Manley called freed slaves in Greenville an incubus and plague. If order was to be preserved in the South, the faculty of Southern concluded white political control was essential. So in 1868, at a speech before the Northern Baptist Home Mission Society, Manley openly conceded, quote, we at the South do not recognize the social equality of the Negro. And he expressly condemned the idea of extending suffrage voting rights to black people. Well, and it's, it's interesting also that Southern Baptist churches historically were the hub of clannish activity. Mm-hmm. So recruitment, like, can you imagine a church allowing the Ku Klux Klan to set up a table in their church <laughs> to recruit people, to oppress black people, to burn, like, people who burn crosses in front of the folks' homes and lynch people. Can you imagine that Southern Baptist churches and churches in America, period, were like, oh, yeah, and, you know, praise the Lord and amen. Thank you in the name of Jesus. And y'all go out. We got um, the KKK, they outside, and and they got a table set up. Y'all go by and say hi to them mm-hmm. <laughs> and sign up. Yep. All right. And y'all have a blessed week. They would deliver. Go with God. 
They would deliberately put lynchings on Sundays after church. Right. So that the church crowd would all be able to just walk straight from the church over to demonic. The town and picture this is the crazy part. They never thought, they never thought that they that it, like it didn't age well. There are pictures of folks standing in front of charred bodies with their children in tow in their Sunday best holding their Bibles like they never thought. And, and it's so crazy because some of these pictures aren't that old. Some of this activity happened when my parents were kids. My great-grandfather told me stories about lynchings. And he passed away like when I was in my 30s. <laughs> so it's just, it didn't age well. Yeah. Can you imagine praying in, praying to a Jewish Messiah, a Middle Eastern, brown-skinned Middle Eastern, <laughs> you know, man, and then turning around and assaulting and inflicting and oppressing uh, people that look more like him than, than, than they look like him. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that? Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Garen, I know this is going to go into like opinion land now, but what are your thoughts on Christians just being completely complicit in that? As people now, we could maybe look back at that and go, wow, these people were crazy. That doesn't even happen now. Evil, demonic. you know, I, and I think you can get into like, you know, I'm not asking you to like whether they were Christians or not, but how does that even happen? How does something, how do you get to the point where you're reading the Bible and they had access to the entire Bible mm-hmm. and still be complicit in owning other humans, whether treating them, you know, I'm air quoting here, good or bad. How do you, how does one even do that? How, how does your brain get to the point where you can own another human and read the Bible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's kind of two components of that. The first, just how did it get there? I think it was entirely greed and white supremacy working together, that there was like a desire to take and have money. And you see the same dynamics in like the colonization of other countries and the extracting of their resources and just the ways that the church was used to justify that also. But the the order was always, through all those activities, it was always, I'm going to take, I'm going to be greedy, I'm going to like own and consume, and then I'm going to find backdoor biblical justifications to do it. But then there's like the other component of that is like, how do I as a Christian process that? Because, I mean, I would say I am Southern Baptist and we're going to, I mean, we're only partway through the episode. We're going to lay into the Southern Baptist church some more. How do I, as a Southern Baptist, process the fact that this is also my history? A couple thoughts on that is, first of all, just I take solace from the fact that when I look at Jesus and who he was, he was so the opposite of all of this. And I also see all throughout the Bible that God's people were 
never the hero of the story. They were always compromised. That the that Israel as like the first expression of God's people was supposed to be a light to the nations, and yet they just became completely inwardly focused on themselves and their own flourishing and were oppressive towards the nations. And so then God kind of constantly judged them for that. They got sent into exile for that. All these different judgments happened. Um, God constantly trying to turn them back towards, no, be not focused on yourself, but be like self-giving and self-sacrificial and servants. You're supposed. It says a, a foundational passage, you're supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And then he says in his law in Deuteronomy that he was in deliberately trying to set up a system where the nations would look in on Israel and God's blessing to them and want in. Like Israel was supposed to be like an advertisement for what it looked like to walk closely with God. And they never lived up to that. They were never the heroes of the story God was. And then in the New Testament, you see the same dynamic play out where, first of all, it was the religious people who killed Jesus. And then even in Revelation, five out of the seven churches in Revelation, that are kind of like the representative sample of churches in the church era. Five of the seven were like completely compromised. And the only two of the seven churches that were not compromised were the two that were like suffering and persecuted, largely by religious people. And so I take solace from the fact that in the Bible, it sets up a framework and a context for me to process the fact that the church has been like so completely compromised. And also just from a recognition that there, the Bible sets up a framework where it says like, there are a lot of people who are going to claim to be Christians who really aren't. And it says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not pray and prophesy and do all these things in your name and in your name, drive out demons. And then Jesus will say, be gone from me. I never knew you. And so not everyone who claimed to be Christian or went by that title throughout history is my, uh, like, I don't have to, you know, I have to like repent of and publicly renounce all those things, but I don't have to let all those things tarnish for me who Jesus was and what he represented. And when I follow him, I'm like actually following him and his example and not the pervasive failures of people who used Christianity throughout history to garner power and wealth for themselves. Well, and I, I want to go back a little bit because I don't even think that the biggest issue, well, enslavement itself is hor- horrible. But, and, and people will say, you know, slavery has existed, you know, this whole time, it's in the Bible. I mean, white Christian America appropriated the history of God's people, chosen people, inserted themselves, and they basically utilized all these stories in the Bible to identify, to self-identify, and then stake claim on a birthright as Christians. I mean, that's one, one, does that make sense? That's one thing that happened. But two... Yeah, and slavery is in the Bible, but they stole people from their land. They stole people from their land, and they stole them in the, into the millions, and they slaughtered them, and they raped them, and they, made, they sex trafficked them, and they made them commit adultery, like I'm just saying, like, this is your faith. You made them commit adultery. You made them, you made young girls have sex with 
men, you made mothers have sex with their sons. Like the ways in with which they bred people, putting, covering their heads so one person wouldn't know who they were having sex with in order to breed more people. And so that's the demonic, and, and I mean, I'm going to be opinionated. How can you be Christian? How can you be Christian when you're leading people to do and commit sins against God? I mean, just on a base, basic level. Mm-hmm. You're making people, you're forcing people to, to engage in sin that you, you're supposed to look down on and you're not supposed to engage in. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was, I mean, definitely it was the enslavement itself and that should not have been from a people who claim to be people of God, but then it was the stealing of people. The Bible talks about stealing people from their land. Like the, it was the stealing was the of The death pe- penalty for that. Right, Jesus. right. Yeah. Stealing people from their land mm-hmm. and the period of time that they stole people from their land. But then there was no way that enslaved people could could come up. Very rarely were people able to purchase their freedom or the idea of purchasing their freedom was just, that was not even a possibility. Mm-hmm. And then just the heinous evils, raping little girls, sex trafficking little girls. <laughs> I, and But how can you sit in a pew? How can you be Christian? I think that charring black bodies, lynching them after church, I don't know. If you guys don't want to say it, I'll say it. Like, that's not, they, they weren't Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, yeah. They, how so, in the world could they be Christians? How, how can you identify them as Christians? Yeah. So I guess the distinction is just that we still, as Christians, need to renounce and repent of what they did, even though I don't think that they knew Jesus. I still, I think, I don't want to just scapegoat it like, this has nothing to do with me. Because I think that's the easy way. And right. I think Christians sometimes like to just take that route of like, well, I don't have to like deal with their junk. But I think it's actually more loving and better for us to deal with their junk. Even though I think their actions, like the Bible says, by their deeds you'll know them. It says that like if we deliberately keep on sinning, that we're not believers. Like if they, you know, like I think there's plenty of texts that you could use in the Bible to say like they weren't really they didn't really know God or love God. They well, were using Christianity. I think that the issue is that these were their these were folks' grandparents. Some like some of your generation and a little older, these were parents. These were their parents and grandparents. That's why I think a lot of times people distance themselves and say, Well, I don't do that because it was their mama and daddy. It was their grandparents. It was their uncle. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> it was it's not so far removed. Like the 60s, my parents were teenagers in the 60s. So if my parents were teenagers in the 60s and they were enduring racism in Memphis, Tennessee, and they were riding in sep- like, then it's safe to say that somebody who's my age, their parents were the ones inflicting. Mm-hmm. It's not so far removed. Mm-hmm. And so these white children that have grown up in their parents' house, knowing I, I have friends who, I have, I have a church member who's, father would kidnap black girls and rape them and kill them. Like, this was a family. I have a church member whose grandfather was one of the top people in the KKK. And uh, these church members, I'm talking about, some of them are younger than I am, and they know their family history. I have a, a co-worker whose father was 
a Satanist and a a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. So it's not so far removed. It it's not this. Oh, you know, once upon a time, a long, long, long time ago, in a land far away. I think that's where the guilt and shame comes from. I think that's why people don't want to assume responsibility because they know that it was their mom and dad, it was their grandparents, it was their aunts and uncles. But then too they know that they benefited. They know when they look at the wealth and the things that they've amassed, it came off the backs of black people. And if you open that door and have to acknowledge that, then you have to acknowledge that your grandmother and your your great your grandfather were the devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that your mom and daddy were were like like Beelzebub. Like I mean I just think it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Am I I mean <laughs> and I don't think people want to do that. Mm-hmm. People don't want to do that. Yeah. So, but then I think, but there's so much that's lost by by not acknowledging and repenting right. of that sin, because then you you either have to deal with the shame of what happened by confronting it and repenting it, or by brushing it under the rug and dismissing it. Right. And by doing that, though, you basically, I mean, you're still haunted by it. Well, and people want that nostalgia of the good old days that never existed because of what it meant for them. People don't want to acknowledge that their memories are are myths. Mm-hmm. They don't want to acknowledge, like, again, once that door opens, you can't close it. And I think that's why so many people fight so hard against anti-racism. Because then what does it mean for... What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my family? And who I thought my, I thought my dad was a great person, but he wasn't. It, it, people don't want to. People don't want to wrestle with that. Yeah. Be, speaking of, let's segue with that to the the fact that, and going back to Southern Seminary, some of these men that we're talking about are still honored and still have buildings at the seminary named after them. Yeah. And uh, and are still spoken of on. In, in, in Baptist churches across the country, mm-hmm. still spoken of during sermons where black people are sitting in the audience listening. Yeah, they're still <laughs> quoted. They're still Oh, he was a great man. And oh, like this great Christian man once said, one of our forefathers said, right there in the middle of their multi-ethnic church. Yeah. So the, the official gavel at the Southern Baptist Convention it bears the name of Brodus who is one of the four founders, another one of the founders that, that we kind of started talking through. And he enslaved two people. At the 1863 meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, John Brodus drafted and presented resolutions pledging Southern Baptist support for the Confederacy. When the question of relocating the seminary eventually arose, John Brodus positively assessed one potential location as desirable since it was, quote, in a white man's country. And then just another example of one of these early men who was kind of is still like esteemed or held in acclaim is an early donor who kind of he was a trustee he was like led the the board of the seminary from 1880 to 1894 led the board of trustees um Joseph E Brown he saved southern through a large donation in the 1870s and an endowed chair the Joseph Emerson Brown chair of Christian theology exists to this day at the seminary. And he was a firm believer in slavery and in Southern states' rights and a leading cessationist. He believed that slavery was no mere moral evil, but rather a God-ordained institution to be perpetuated. 
and he also got the lion's share of his personal fortune through convict leasing. Hmm. Which if you don't know what that is, you need to go back and listen to the episode to know that convict leasing was actually an even more brutal form of slavery. A form of slavery that continued to exist after the Civil War in which black men were falsely accused of all kinds of crimes and then worked to death in mines and other forms of hard labor. And that's how literally the fortune of the man who financially funded the seminary, Southern Seminary, was funded by the murder and working to death of falsely accused black men who were put into slavery. Like that's how close the, these connections run. And that's like the, the, the first and chief seminary of the Southern Baptist denomination. And that man, Joseph Brown, still, there's still to this day the Joseph Emerson Brown Chair of Christian Theology. It's like he's still honored when he was working people to death and enslaving them post-Civil War. And then the final of the four founders, just to mention briefly, just to close that circle, is James Boyce. He enslaved 23 people and while serving in South Carolina's State Constitutional Convention in 1865, so at the tail of the Civil War, Boyce delivered a speech arguing, this is a white man's government. So these founders, these men, the, the legacy they leave is one of white supremacy. And I think, I think that we... Even, even as much as their actions declare that they didn't know the Jesus that we know, I think we still, as white Christians of today, like for, for Brad and I, and then to, for anyone who considers themselves Southern Baptist or to like just be a spiritual descendant of this sin, we just need to like repent and humble ourselves under the reality of the, that this is our story. And I think a big step in that is just acknowledging it. I think a big step in that these people who are honored should not be honored. And that's not cancel culture. These people were not following Jesus. They were treating people with such culpable brutality and they knew better. It was beyond the point that they, like, they're without excuse and they were hypocrites. I mean, they're at the same level as I don't think there's going to be you know, more seminaries named after Ravi Zacharias at this point because he has now been exposed as a total hypocrite. And that's the same thing here. These these were men who were whose faith was hypocritical. And I think that we need to denounce and publicly denounce what they did because right now in congregations across the country, there are black and brown black and brown people who sit under leadership and hear them quoted and hear them honored when they aren't worthy of that honor. You know, the Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due. I don't think right. honor is due. Well, and the crazy thing is that the SBC and many like reform denominations, they are so strict about what right doctrine and sound doctrine is. And they will publicly disqualify and denounce pastors, men and women for their theology. But who's going to disqualify? Who's going to be disqualified for racism? Who's going to be disqualified for their history of racism? It's like how do you denounce someone because they believe in women pastors or they I want to baptize a different way than you want to right. baptize? Right. How are you going to denounce based on that? But then at the same time, you're going to uplift your forefathers of white supremacy to your multi-ethnic church. And I think that's why we're seeing that hypocrisy. 
That's why we're seeing black people and black pastors and black churches leaving the SBC. There's been a continual appropriation and, well, really a tokenization of black bodies. You know, yes, we want you to be a member because because we want to feel good about you know before we want to we want to um, soothe our guilt in our conscience. Look, look, Lord, we're saving black people from themselves. We're offering them the hand of salvation, and we have black people in our churches. So how how can we be racist? How can we be not um, doing what God has called us to do? Uh, but at the same time. You are standing on the wrong side of justice. You're standing on the wrong side of history. You're continuing to use black bodies for your purposes. Oh, the SBC can't be that bad because look at this black pastor. Look at this black elder who gets up and 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 says the prayer after some heinous thing has played out on national TV again. Some black person has been killed or insurrectionists are climbing the wall in D.C. And, and plotting and planning to kill folks. And some of these folks are Southern Baptists that show up because someone, he told us to come, so we're here. And you got a noose, like a lynching post, and an American flag, and a cross, all in the same area. And you're doing it in the name of your rights and liberty and in the name of Jesus. Like, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. And so now you're seeing this mass blexitus, this, you know, of black people leaving. Because when we're talking about segregation and we're talking about, and I know you're going to talk about how Sunday is the most segregated segregated time. It's because white Christians don't engage with black Christians in an equitable way. They don't. White people don't submit to black leadership. It's, it's, a, it's still this constant thing of we're going to get black pastors and black teachers and black people that agree with us, that, you know, tote our theology, that believe what we believe, that don't believe in racism, that don't believe in critical race theory, you know, that are anti-critical race theory. We're going to get these hand-picked black people that affirm us in our whiteness, or we're going to get black people that are just edgy enough so that we can say that we're doing the work of racial reconciliation. We're going to get just enough blackness to give us a pass. But then on the issues of justice and on the issues of anti-racism and oppression and, you know, even with this 750 plus cases of sexual abuse that have come out, we're not going to really deal with that. We're not going to really dig in deep. And we're, we're not going to go to black churches that have been holding it down <laughs> for over a century or more. Black churches and black pastors and teachers who have been caring for the black community and forgiving the white community who have seen churches, who have seen their black members through gentrification, who have seen their black members through their townships being burned to the ground, their churches being bombed, uh, you know, just brutality. We're not going to acknowledge, we're just going to bring in, we're going to take black people from out of these communities and we're going to give them a spot 
to make ourselves feel good so that we can point and say, look, see, look at what we're doing. Mm-hmm. No, no posture of humility. And we'll disqualify black pastors because of theology. We'll disqualify black churches because of theology. But a whole theology of racism, white solidarity, and oppression that your, 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 your entire foundation is built on. Yeah, and some of the roots of that have been, I mean, that kind of gets back into just, it's been that way all along. That even going back to the revivalist culture, like Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, Moody, they condoned segregation at their revivalist meetings. Billy Sunday and Moody, Moody uh, had like segregation everywhere. Uh, Billy Graham was like, you could tell that he didn't really love segregation, but he went along with it where he needed to, uh, wherever it was the local custom, he went along with it. And then he, and to your point of like how racism does not disqualify white people in ministry, um, that's super evidently seen with the fact that Billy Graham, he, he kept as his, he maintained as his home church, First Baptist Church of Dallas with mm-hmm. Pastor W.A. Criswell, mm-hmm. who was like flagrantly racist. So even as Billy Graham was the most famous evangelical figure of his day, he maintained an explicitly racist home church and home pastor. W.A. Criswell, just to kind of spell that out a little bit, he led the largest Southern Baptist church in, in his day, and he preached against integration. He stated that desegregation was, quote, a denial of all we believe in. And he called the Brown versus Board decision foolishness and idiocy. And yet Billy Graham, even though he, like in his own conviction, thought we should love black and brown people, and he didn't love the fact that meetings were segregated, he, he didn't think that that was something to cut ties with Chriswell over. And it just shows like how racism has gotten a pass, even, even for Christians who like aren't comfortable with it. They've given it a pass throughout history and continue to do so in a lot of ways. Well, and to be fair, Billy Graham did begin to integrate. Mm -hmm. After Brown. Yeah. But he resisted Martin Luther King. He... They they got into it because he didn't... Another another one of those things where it's like, I'm going to do abolition work and anti-racism work to the extent that it makes me comfortable. But I'm going to denounce black people who are fully engaged and fully committed to the work. So how are you coming up against Martin Luther King about his methods? And he a black man that not wanting to submit to the upliftment and amplifying the voices of the oppressed. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. Just remember that this is part one. So if you just finished this, make sure you go ahead and move on to part two. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can visit patreon.com backslash black history for white people, where you can support us for $5 a month. We'll leave you with this quote from Jackie Robinson. I'm not concerned with your liking or disliking me. All I ask is that you respect me as a human being.